Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. What did the radical essayist and polemical journalist Christopher Hitchens and the conservative philosopher Sir Roger Scruton have in common? In this podcast, Douglas Murray, the commentator and author of The Strange Death of Europe, and most recently, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity, talks to the political editor of The Critic, Graham Stewart, about the personal debt he owes to the two men he considers his literary mentors and the wider contribution that they made to debate and critical thinking on both sides of the Atlantic. Douglas Murray, in the July edition of The Critic magazine, you've written an article angels still sitting on my shoulder about the two uh, intellectual mentors that that helped shape your career um christopher hitchens and roger scruton i'm going to talk about those two gentlemen in a moment but first of all what is a mentor and how how is that different from being an inspirational teacher or indeed a patron ah well um a patron of course uh, involves a financial uh, benefit or generosity, should we say. And uh, um, <laughs> that wasn't the case with either of the men I write about here, just because, uh, um, you know, that wasn't the nature of the relationship. A, a patron, of course, is, uh, is is something that's also, I think, rather sort of in the past now. I mean, I, maybe one wishes they weren't. But um, but yes, it's, it's clearly different from that. And it's different from a teacher in that uh, a teacher is, as it were, obliged to help uh, a student. A mentor, I think, is different. I think a mentor is um, somebody who, even though not obliged to help or encourage somebody along their career, nevertheless does so. Um, And I think a lot of people, I say this in the piece, a lot of people find that uh, throughout their life, this isn't just writers, but obviously it's particularly prominent with writers and artists and others is that uh, you know many of us in our lives find that we have people who effectively we look to as guides and i i say uh, i say in the piece that that for many people uh, uh, that is is very subtle in the way it, it can operate it's um in the case of a writer it's basically the people who you you sort of write for in a way or or would be sorry to disappoint <laughs> um Obviously, you never want to disappoint your readers too much, but but actually, I think most writers have in their heads a sort of invisible uh, um, collection of of critics or or mentors, you might say, who who you do sort of have in mind, whose good opinion you would like to have or to retain, and whose um, who, whose you know um, disappointment you would not like to uh, receive, and. Uh, and yes, so I, th- I think it is different. It's, uh, but it's something which I say everybody has to some extent in their life. And uh, it, it was Christopher Hitchens in your life. It was Christopher Hitchens you met first, was it? What, what were the circumstances in which you met? Uh, no, I actually met Roger uh, Scruton first. Um, uh, Christopher, uh, uh, I knew of first because he, he reviewed my first book uh, back in 2000 uh, for the New York Review of Books and uh, was very praising of it and I didn't know anything about him at the time I didn't know him uh, and didn't even know of him uh, but I was interested when I started reading him and 
got more and more interested and was particularly pleased that he, like me, I mean, he, 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 as I sort of already was starting to realize, I, I, I was admiring of somebody who, who, who cared about politics and wrote about politics, but also cared about literature and the arts, cared about culture and was able to write about both. Um, that seemed to me quite important at the time. I sort of had these things in different boxes in my head and, uh, and Christopher sort of showed that you could, you could do that and more. Uh, simultaneously. But I actually didn't meet him for some years uh, after uh, that. Um, I met Roger first uh, when uh, we turned out to be working together in my first sort of job in journalism uh, as an intern at a, an online magazine. And Roger was the only other discernibly conservative person in the office. And, uh, and I suppose was, you know, sort of spotted me and spotted that we had some similar interests and some similar preoccupations and, and uh, were also sort of lone figures <laughs> in, a, in a very uh, left-wing environment. And, and so, yes, I I'd, I'd sort of got to know Roger first. And then, then subsequently, I think on a trip to London, finally met up with Christopher and had lunch and, and became friends with him. And Christopher Hitchens had, had written rather disobligingly about Roger Scruton, both obviously coming from very different traditions. Roger Scruton, the great conservative philosopher, uh, and Christopher Hitchens really starting off as, a, uh, as, as, an, as an incendiary writer, as, as, as a Trotskyist in many ways. Um, but they, they had a, a developing respect for one another, or was it just that their approach to life was similar, albeit on different tracks? I think it was, it was very different. Uh, one of the things I liked about Christopher, one of the things I sort of mentioned in the piece, I slightly feel like I, I learned something from him, not as much as I could have done, was his um, considerable ecumenicalism. Uh, I, I mentioned that... He, he'd, he'd referred to Roger in passing in a piece, actually a piece of Christmas called um, Goodbye to Berlin about Isaiah Berlin. And he, he uh, criticized Roger's famous 1980s attack on Berlin uh, and in passing referred to Roger as, I think, a recreational vulpicide, which I thought was rather overwrought, but, um, but clearly disobliging. Um, and I sort of assumed in a way that that would mean that he wouldn't want to know anything about Roger. But I uh, was staying with Scrutons in Virginia in uh, about 2003 or so and was subsequently going on uh, to DC where I, among other things, was having dinner with Christopher. And I mentioned that uh, I'd come from the Scrutons and he, I remember him saying, you know, I, um, oh, I didn't know they were here. I must look them up. And I remember this sort of registering with me. And this is the sort of thing that mentors are quite good at doing if they're good. <laughs> it registered with me. That's interesting. Um, you know, you can you can be more across the barriers than sometimes people think. You know, um, and 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 I was I was sort of just a small thing that just registered in my mind at the time. Um, and I remember subsequently they were in a debate against each other in Westminster Central Hall, debating the uh, the question of God. And I remember being feeling very torn uh, uh, as they were on opposite sides. And I remember my main feeling was, God, I hope that Christopher doesn't beat Roger up. Um, because, you know, Christopher on really pugilistic debate stage form was, was fearsome. And was, I think it's fair to say, willing to hit lower and harder than most people are in such 
venues. Um, but it was it was a very it was actually a fairly mild evening by Christopher's standards. But again, it was it was it was um, interesting to see them. I liked that feeling of wishing wishing on both sides. You know, wishing on both of them to do their best and to do well. And uh, they both did. Uh, I think I abstained. I can't remember. And, and you, you sense they respected each other, though, or was it a, uh, a bit more wary than that? I, I think they did respect each other. Um, I, I mean, one of the things that I notice as I go along is that in the end, you do, unless you have, there's somebody who you hold in total contempt and who at some point you or they have been unforgivably unpleasant about or more commonly sort of deceitful about that's uh, a more common reason not to want to have anything to do with somebody. Uh, um, unless that is the case, I, I, I discovered that you, you end up sort of having a grudging respect that can turn into a real respect for other people who do what you do, broadly speaking. Um, other people who show up, you know? Uh, I've certainly noticed this. There are, there are people who I'm very much in disagreement with on all sorts of things, but who, you know, over the years, you think, oh, no, she, you know, she or he, you know, they show up, they, they argue their corner, they, they fight their way. And if they do it with style, you, you can't help sort of thinking, you yeah, know, good on them uh, and uh, wishing them well. <laughs> um, and so I, I think there was a certain amount of that. I don't think anyone could have really not, admired Roger's intellect. Uh, I, I mean, he, he, anyone who thought that he, you know, wasn't smart would, would betray themselves really horribly. <laughs> um, so I suppose that might be why that little bleak, you know, uh, um, sort of nudge of Christopher's happened because he wouldn't have wanted to have taken Roger on, on, you know, Hegel or Kant or something. Um, uh, and I, I don't know, really. I mean, Roger was obviously would have been slightly suspicious of Christopher's lifelong leftism. Um, but then in later years, there were things that, that Christopher argued for, which were slightly in contradiction to some of that. And I think probably like a lot of us noticed that Christopher had moved, although uh, Christopher would never have described himself as being of the right. And he probably wasn't. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Christopher Hitchens, towards the end of his life, was sometimes described as a neoconservative, and that, mm. that is a, a label he rejected. I mean, he said he was no sort of conservative. But is it the fact that towards the end of the life, and particularly after 9-11 uh, uh, and Christopher Hitchens' support for the, for the response that followed, uh, that the so-called war on terror, uh, is, is it the case that, that Hitchens in particular moved his position uh, or is it more the rest of the world moved and, and uh, Hitchens stayed put and what had previously been seen to be a rather uh, revolutionary position was perceived to be a rather more conservative one? Yeah, I, I, this is a very tricky bit of intellectual terrain because, of course, everybody always says they didn't leave the left, the left left them. Uh, uh, people say it on the right as well, of course. Uh, you know, I haven't moved. I've remained stable. It's everyone else who's gone nuts. Uh, so always that has to be treated with a certain degree of scepticism or considerable scepticism, actually. Um, it's normally a combination of factors. Uh, I think for Christopher, after 9-11, seeing segments of the American left becoming, for instance, well, treating themselves to endless self-criticism and not looking above their own navels, you know, that was 
that was clearly a problem for, for Christopher, as it should have been for everyone. You know, the, those people who just said, well, uh, we deserve this, or look what we did in the 50s, or something, this sort of thing, didn't seem like a very appropriate response to 9-11. In fact, it seemed really inadequate. Uh, and equally, there was the, uh, the fact that, you know, elements, again, segments of the left, didn't just say the Iraq war was a bad idea, but were actually sort of acting in some cases really openly as apologists of the Saddam Hussein regime. And I suppose that those things certainly horrified Christopher and, 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 and you know, really worried him about the state of his own political side. I don't think that meant, meant that he became of the right, um, because, of course, that would be to say that the right is a sort of party of war or, you know, just sort of endlessly wants all conflicts, which isn't the case, as we know. Um, I, I think that, that he certainly went against the sort of anti-militarist left, for sure. Do you think with Christopher Hitchens that the fact that so many people on the left came to detest him because of what they saw as his apostasy, uh, apostasy is, was that something that pained him? Or was he such a pugilist that had he quite liked to uh, stay relevant and stay in, 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 in the fight? Oh, no, I think that, I mean, everyone pretends that these things don't worry them or depress them, but they always do to some extent. They always hurt you, particularly when people who you were close to sort of start doing the denunciations. And my gosh, that happened with Christopher. Um, uh, I think some of that did wound him. Of course, like everyone who supported the Iraq war, particularly people who were as prominent a supporter as he was, there was then the terrible, you know, business of what the hell do you do about as it all went pear-shaped and, you know, and uh, he never, uh, you know, reversed his feelings, his arguments that he'd made in 2003. But like everybody, you know, you, what, what do you do when something you'd, you'd supported that had such high hopes for turns out so bloodily and so messily? And the, the normal thing people do is to say it was the the way in which it was done, not the deed itself. And, and sometimes that's justifiable and sometimes it isn't. Um, uh, but it is the case, of course, that something did, interesting did happen with him, which was that he, he said by his own admission that, that, that he started to rethink certain things when he noticed that, you know, signing letters in support of the Kurdish cause, for instance, the other signatories were people like Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl and others. And, and you know, figures on the left weren't showing up for that sort of thing. And whenever there's a cause, as the Kurdish cause was for Christopher, which is close to your heart, things can often turn on that. Uh, and I think that was the case for him. Uh, there was a legitimate, very deeply felt uh, sense that, you know, that cause had not been addressed and that the anti-war left had not been contending with it as seriously as they should have done. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a point of difference between being a, a trenchant debater and being a, a public intellectual uh, I think both Christopher Hitchens and Roger Scruton uh, would be seen as public intellectuals. In, in mm. fact, in Roger Scruton's case, just pure intellectual. Yes. Um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, one who had a very public profile and was very happy to, to uh, appear on television and, and uh, write for newspapers and so on. Uh, both had, had visiting <laughs> professors, professorships. But ultimately, Christopher Hitchens will be remembered more for his essays than for a, a coherent body of philosophical work, whereas with mm. Roger Scruton, it's probably the other way around. It, it's it's mm. the books that will be remembered, not the journalism. 
uh, uh, both of them, for all their difference of views, are you know, or are or, or became maybe too outside the conventional academic worldview to really be comfortable and feel entrenched on a university campus. Mm. Um, certainly, that had become true by by the end of their lives, if not at the beginning. Is it really the case now that the role of the public intellectual is that there is more, we might not have another Christopher Hitchens or another Roger Scruton, but, but, but that role has become more urgent and more necessary than ever, given that the university campus is such a hostile place to people who are prepared to argue uh, from controversial viewpoints. Yeah, I think it's something, of course, I mean, my own view is, that, I mean, Christopher was was not an academic. I mean, he was a, he was a hack, he was a journalist, he was a, a scribbler, a scribe, you know, uh, 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 much more. Uh, I, I don't think that it's ever appropriate. I've always held this view that it's not appropriate for journalists, you know, to be in academia. I, I, I loathe it when you see, you know, um, people like Yasmin Alibi-Brown and other left-wing columnists suddenly taking up positions at universities which are of course only ever offered to them uh in order to to you know because it's not a discipline what they're doing i mean it's a skill to some extent some of it can be imbibed but i'm not sure it can be taught like that so i've always felt that you know people moaning that that, that, that universities won't won't give journalists sort of positions it's sort of preposterous it, it, you know you we don't get given positions in surgeries either you know it is it should be good reasons. I think that line should be held. Uh, Roger's uh, relationship with the Academy was much more difficult and complex because, of course, he really should have been uh, um, in a very significant role at one of the major universities. And uh, his own account of what had happened was that he had come out as a conservative and that had damned him. Of course, it's not entirely true because there are, have been conservatives at certain uh, um, you know, universities in this country. In Roger's time, Peter House Cambridge was was notorious, one might say, for that. But uh, but of course, I think the public nature of Roger's uh, um, uh, apostasy from the the leftist orthodoxies definitely made it a lot harder. He couldn't sort of swim under under the the radar. Um, and he, his account was that after publishing the meaning of conservatism in what 1979 1980 uh, that closed off his academic career i think that probably is true uh, certainly by the time he was contributing his columns to the times in the 1980s he was such a prominent public figure and such a hate figure for the left that uh, that it would have been difficult but i think that was the university's loss uh, and for several reasons the first is that as happened at the end of his life uh, uh, you know, he he had a visiting um, position teaching uh, one term a year at St Andrews University, and that was simply because the St Andrews, like other universities, simply didn't have anyone who could teach some of the major philosophers. And Roger very much could; he he knew all of these works, all the texts, and I mean better than anyone. And I, I, I so the first thing is that the second thing, of course, is that. I think the university's lost something very significant in losing Roger because uh, his natural instinct was to nurture um, and encourage young people and inspire them indeed. Uh, he had a, a group of students at Oxford, he often jokingly referred to as the refugees, um, who were um, sort of refugees from the modern university, who were students who 
who just weren't getting what they had hoped to get from their university experience and who Roger would in his spare time have, you know, reading sessions with groups, discussions and help them on an individual level, you know, one, one on one. And I know a lot of people actually uh, um, who had exactly this, um, got exactly this from Roger, who were really despairing about the state of the education they were getting, were not getting what they'd paid for. And Roger, unpaid, gave them uh, what the university had not on his own dime, as it were, in his own spare time. And he, he, he did so much of that. It's hard to think of what more he could have done. But perhaps if he had have had an official position, that could have been, you know, made official, as it were. It would have been enormously to any university's benefit to have had that. Uh, and uh, it would have been, I think, for an enormous number more students, they could have benefited from that. I wonder if I may tie things together with a, with a consciously provocative question, and that is ultimately one looks at the talents, talents of Hitchens and, and Scruton, but one looks at, at the world around us, society around us now, and says, you know, it, it was wonderful whilst it lasted, but, but really they failed. I mean, they, they both failed. One, one looks at the, the world that, or certainly the Britain that Roger Scruton would, would like to have seen, and it seems very far removed from from the country today in different ways also Christopher Hitchens is it too despairing to say they both failed no I mean not at all uh, uh, failure not least we would never have heard of we wouldn't be discussing and we wouldn't be reading um, and I mean there are lots of ways to regard success um, I mean professional not just personal success and professional um, uh, success, to my mind, means that people, uh, among other things, would want to continue reading you and would continue to contend with the ideas you had. My experience is that YouTube, among other things, has done an enormous amount to keep Christopher alive uh, in uh, people's hearts and minds, and that uh, new generations discover him primarily through his, his extraordinary debating skills and, and um, uh, pyromaniac-like ability on the stage. Um, uh, and I think they then tend to find the work. With Roger, perhaps that's the other way around. But again, I mean, there are, there are many people who discover Roger through his documentary on beauty, for instance, and then start reading the book of that and then go to other uh, books and works of his. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, to a great extent, success in these realms is the mark you've made on your time. And uh, both men made as much a mark as you could as a public intellectual uh, in, in forcing people to think about things that, that they might have wanted to have passed over and, and, and pushing them to think more and indeed better. Um, I also think that when it comes to the question of as it were, um, their world not being our world, I, I don't find this is true. Um, Christopher didn't have a sort of world view of the, of the kind that Roger did. I don't think of the same sort of depth in a way. Um, he had enormous range of qualities, but he didn't have a, a sort of total world view in a way that, that, that Roger had developed. But uh, Roger's, um, I think, extraordinary gift to successive generations is um, a vision um, of how to live and... Um, a vision of life as it should be lived, which which can be engaged in now and at any time in the future. And 
I don't think that will go away. Um, we might suffer through much worse horrors than occurred in his lifetime. But uh, it might be even more important in such a world uh, to remember somebody whose who's sort of guiding desire, among other things, was to encourage people to see the world as more than just the world around them. I mean, his, his writing so often, particularly his writing on Wagner, shares this, this uh, um, Wagnerian idea of, 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 of the extraordinary properties that the world has which we ignore or don't talk about. And this is, this is you know, Roger's writing on aesthetics is, 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 is really deep and important on this. And it, in, it goes through and abuses writing on almost everything, architecture, music, uh, uh, literature, and politics. And that is that you know, the, the world around us can be looked at in this bleak and uh, um, uh, sort of concrete manner, uh, or it can be seen to be the magical thing that it also is. And, and those elements of it can be drawn out and lived in. And I suppose the final thing to point out on that is that, of course, a lot of this has to do with attitude. And the, uh, the guiding attitude of our own era is, is resentment. As, it, as Roger pointed out many times in the 60s onwards, that, that resentment is that you, you pass off all uh, blame of, for yourself and you give it to things around you and people around you and you say that, that you haven't got what you deserved and, and then you find the people who you think made sure you didn't get what you deserved and then you war on them. And Roger had a very straightforward but very deep uh, recognition that, that this was a very unhappy way to live and that the more appropriate way to live is in a spirit of gratitude. And indeed, that's the last thing he wrote, pretty much, was a, a piece in which he said that, that the, the, the meaning of life came down to it was gratitude. Uh, that's all there in his work, and I think it'll all be there to, to jolt and remind people of a very, very, very important truth for a long time to come. Well, Douglas Murray, talking there about uh, the legacies you felt from Christopher Hitchens and Roger Scruton, uh, but also the, the legacies for the rest of us as well. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.